episode 126 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Hi, my name is James. I hold an ATP in airplanes and helicopters. I've been flying now for about 20 years. I have a little over 10,000 hours and still fly airplanes and helicopters and everything else I can get my hands on. Aviation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot Podcast. My name is Justin Seams, and I am your host. Today's episode is the episode for all the pilots out there not looking to fly for action or not looking to fly for the airlines, but looking for that perfect corporate aviation job. James, my buddy, uh, he has that job. He has that experience. He flies in an amazing amount of aircraft. Like I think we were talking about how many types he has. He rivals Mike Monero, and uh, it's pretty amazing. He has a great job. He has found probably one of the best jobs you can possibly have in aviation. So if you're listening right now and you're like, man, I really want to know how I can find that kind of job. Well, this is the episode for you. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can check us out on Instagram and all of our social media at Pilot the Pilot. Check out our website, pilotthepilothq.com. And you can also email me for any feedback at pilotthepilothq at gmail.com. Aviation, I want to keep this really short. I just want you to get into this episode, really enjoy it because he has such a great job and it's a cool story to hear. And he just loves flying, specifically loves the safety of flying and doing it right. So Aviation, without any further ado, here's my buddy James with the perfect corporate aviation job. James, what's going on, man? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hey, not too much. Good to uh, finally chat with you uh, over Skype. I know, right? Uh, I, I failed to tell you what we're doing until two minutes before, so <laughs> I appreciate you being able to download it really quick and and get this get this ready to go. Unfortunately, all I seem to have these days is time, so yeah, this I know. Has worked out just fine. Just like everyone else. It's funny, so I'm recording a bunch of these episodes while I'm on a quote-unquote vacation right now, which it actually is a vacation, but I can't do anything other than record episodes. So there's going to be just a bunch of episodes, maybe even like four months in, down the road when everything's back to normal, where it's going to be like, well, coronavirus, coronavirus, coronavirus. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting. I'm sure we're not even going to remember what it was. We're yeah. going to have to look that up on Wikipedia. What was that? Coronavirus? Yeah. Is that a thing? Yeah. What, what? <laughs> that would be ideal for sure. But I'm sure we'll uh, we'll go down that tangent eventually talking a little bit about that. Uh, but for now, I kind of want to focus on the why, the, uh, the, the original inspiration for you getting into, into aviation. Gosh, why aviation? It's such a big question. Um, but being a little self-reflective, uh, I've I focused a lot of my life on a lot of my life's meaning on gathering new experiences. And in aviation, there is just a unlimited number of experiences that you can have. So from a very young age of looking towards doing new things and seeing new things and enjoying different aspects of life, aviation just drew me in. Um, Initially, it was the, the challenges that are associated with aviation. I, I uh, started out like many in flight simulators, and I think I was 11 years old when I purchased my first flight simulator, and it was a challenge. I knew nothing of it, but that challenge really excited me to learn more and more. And next thing you know, I'm on the internet, I'm flying with other people and doing air traffic control and writing checklists, and suddenly I'm in aviation for a, for a few years at the at the ripe old age of 15 going i really love these challenges 
Um, and then w- with those challenges, there's a lot of goals that you can set for yourself. And so having a wide variety of experiences and being able to confront the challenges of learning and growing within aviation. And then I think the third prong of that is the social aspect. When you're sharing this with other people, initially you're doing a lot of learning from other people. And then as you grow and progress, you're also teaching. And then it kind of, again, circles back around to the experience thing because there's just nothing better at the end of the day, at least for me, pouring a glass of wine with friends and talking about the flying that you did that day or the adventures that you had last week. And we all know those evenings can go on forever. So. But in your case, you were talking about boxed wine, right? That's usually what you drink. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Boxed wine, Franzia is definitely (laughs) a go-to. Inside jokes on a podcast, they always go very well, right? (laughs) But anyways. I I, I like to tell people I I enjoy wine and flying, just never in that order. Yeah. that's that's. I hope so. Yeah, that'd be good. That that could lead to a good conversation on the podcast, though. So let me know if you want to go down that route, too. (laughs) Well, I'll I'll talk your off about wine, but I think everybody would stop listening from that point. (laughs) You never know. We might have a couple of winos, but probably more interested in aviation. And I thought it was interesting that... When you were playing, or when you're not playing, sorry, you actually were were learning from Flight Simulator. When I was playing Flight Simulator, I didn't take it at an aspect of, of learning or create or a learning environment. I was just flying to see if I could like hit things or if I could land it or just like shoot things. Like what I know, I can't even remember. You can't shoot in the plane, but any kind of flying game, I was just trying to. I wasn't trying to learn at all. So it's really interesting to see that you were you were doing checklists. You were seeing how far you could take this and you were like starting to plan out your career based on the video game that you're playing. I I have so many flight simulator stories of, of things I used to do and you could call it an extremely high level of nerdiness, but it really paid dividends um, throughout my career, even even now, not only in what I was able to learn from kind of being exposed to a wide variety of aviation in flight simulator. I mean, you can do literally whatever you want. If it's military aviation, if it's, I was into the virtual airline side of things uh, and the virtual air traffic control. I, I used to do things like I would uh, take off, I'd plan a flight, I'd have the whole dispatch release, I'd have all this and I'd take off from Heathrow flying an A340, and I'd leave my computer running all night, and I'd go to sleep, and that's when my uh, uh, international relief crew would, would be flying, quote-unquote, my little flight simulator. And then I'd wake up in the morning and land it. So there's just such a wide variety of things that you can learn with, uh, with flight simulator. And it, uh, it, it also introduced me to a lot of people that were around my age that were also on the same career track. And I really think that uh, at least I'm kind of out of touch with the flight simulator world now, but when I was starting out again, gosh, 20 years ago, um, it was, it was a breeding ground for pilots and, you know, these friends of mine were, were all teenagers and now friends of mine are flying for major airlines, they're military pilots, corporate pilots. So it's just really cool to see and, and, and reminisce. Hey, remember when we were flying on our virtual airlines and, and doing that stuff? So That's funny. What do you think your career or even kind of like life would look like if there was no flight simulator? If there never was that game that helped kind of cultivate your love for aviation, do you think you still would have found aviation farther down the line? I think so. Yes, I think because of the 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 wide variety of experiences and the challenges that aviation offers, I probably would have gone a different direction, either towards 
investment banking and management consulting or perhaps something in the, the medical field. Uh, and I probably would have made a hell of a lot more money if I, <laughs> if I had not found that flight simulator uh, that young. But um, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade the path that I was was able to take for anything. That's funny. It, I'm glad that you brought this up with like what or like seven minutes into the podcast or or eight minutes into the podcast. But you already mentioned money and how you can make so much more money doing other things. And it's just a good segue to remind people that don't get into this industry for the money. I mean. There's a very select few that can make really good money. And it's usually at the end. I mean, a lot of people can make good money, but I'm talking about like really, really good money, like life-changing money. But like, you know, you hear about the Delta pilot making 800 grand and he's 65 years old. It's like, yeah, maybe there's money, but it's when you're 65 at a major airline, you know? Well, the, the, being in the, the, the world I've, I've been in, in, in aviation and, you know, we'll use the general term corporate, but also working with a lot of private owners and doing mentor flying, you're around a lot of wealth and it will easily, it, it's a good way of dispelling this myth that money brings happiness. I've flown with many people that are in aviation as a hobby. They're very wealthy. They are not any happier on the whole having their millions of dollars of wealth. And, and in fact, many times they're, they're more stressed out than I am. So. If you think that money uh, is going to bring you happiness, the old adage is it's just not true. Um, meaning and purpose in your life will bring you the most happiness. And the assumption, I sound like Jordan Peterson here, the assumption of personal responsibility will bring you the most meaning and the most happiness in life. And I should should preface that too with it's not that happiness has ever been the goal, it's contentment. But this is kind of steering off into the philosophical <laughs> yeah, they don't want to hear me go philosophical. They're going to be like, wow, Justin's really dumb. Like, <laughs> He can only talk about airplanes. That's a, that's, that's a bummer. But no, yeah, I mean, I'll have to check, make sure I don't get copyrighted if you're stealing someone else's content when you said that. But uh, <laughs> it, it's true. I mean, uh, it is true. Money is, is a dangerous thing. And obviously you want to make, you want to be the one that's making millions and millions of dollars, but it comes to a point where maybe the return is not worth the risk or not worth something that comes with that along with the stress or there's more money, more problems essentially. But yeah, I mean, there is a way to find a happy medium in that. There's a way to still be happy and make a lot of money. I'm sure there's people out there. It's just kind of how you handle it and how you come up with your money. So there's definitely multiple sides to that. Yeah. It's, it's about, uh, it's about an individual's personal uh, goals and, and what they want to accomplish. And that's, that's always the thing that gives me pause when I talk about the way that I look at things or my journey in aviation is I just want to put a big asterisk. Your mileage will vary. <laughs> you will have different uh, things that interest you and different paths that are, that are not necessarily mine. But I, I love sharing what I have been able to accomplish in aviation and what it's brought me, but know that this, that this path doesn't work for everyone. Uh, and that, that's part of the fun is, is, is carving your own path forward in aviation because you just don't know what you'll find. Speaking of your path, so you were doing Flight Simulator and there's kind of, I mean, obviously you can't go fly and get your ratings right away. So what did you do other than Flight Simulator to prepare, uh, or especially when you're getting closer to maybe 16 and you can solo or you can start taking flight lessons and once you got to the age, you can take your private pilot lessons or ratings. Were you still very heavy in the flight simulator world or did you start a segue toward actual flying and reading actual checklists and not the ones you created? I was still very much involved in, in flight simulation all through my training. Um, 
But an interesting thing happened to me that was serendipitous to establish me on a different path. And at age, I, I saw an, an advertisement for a discovery flight. And I said, I, I, you know, I want to take that discovery flight. Uh, so when I was 13 and there was some special event and I was like, hey, can I have a discovery flight as a gift? My, my grandparents um, were, were offering to get me the discovery flight. So we went to the local flight school. And I was chatting with one of their instructors. <laughs> I said, I'm 13 and I'm really into flight simulators and on and on and on. We're, we're, we're having a good conversation. And he looks at me and he goes, you know what? You are going to get so bored of flying airplanes for three years. <laughs> There's a helicopter company across the field. I hear those are more of a challenge. You should check that out. So instead of getting an intro flight in a Cessna 172, I did an intro flight in a Robinson R-22, and life has never been the same. So <laughs> I went the helicopter your, route first. I was going to say, so was your path helicopter first then? I was helicopter first, yes. I, um, I, uh, I kind of I took that demo flight, and then I was really hooked on helicopters. Um, primarily, I think, because... It was another challenge, you know, flight simulator. I was actually feeling pretty good at my ability to fly an A340 across the Atlantic on the correct nat track. But helicopters, this whole concept of hovering them and auto-rotating them was just such an interesting challenge to me. And so you know, I would spend days after school all the time just perfecting my hover on the flight simulator uh, so that I could jump into the real thing and and try to further hone my skills. So I was really actively using flight sim as a, as a tool there. Um, the downside though, is that helicopters are expensive. Um, they're, they're very expensive, quite a bit less expensive back then than they are now, but still very expensive. And so I was and working towards finding any small jobs that I could do and just in any time there were empty reposition flights or we need to go gas up the helicopter, I was always there. I would, I would have my parents drive it. When they had to run up a helicopter for maintenance to do a mag check, I, I would have my parents drive me there. I would only sometimes have enough money for a point three on the hops, which was enough to start the helicopter, go practice hovering for a bit. And then fly back, and, and the instructor, you know, would roll his eyes because he's not making any money really off of a point three. But it's all the money I had, so I was just progressively chipping away and and uh, just always being present there. I remember once I was underneath a helicopter looking at things, and the director of maintenance stuck his head under there, and he goes, uh, "Can I help you?" <laughs> and I said, oh, "Oh, my instructor said that, that you guys wouldn't mind, and if I just looked at," and he's like no, we're doing an inspection on this if you want to check it out. And I spent the whole rest of the day, again, I'm 14, and this is just the coolest thing ever, uh, helping do an inspection on a, on a turbine helicopter. Um, so, yes, being present and being around, but also not, not being annoying is, is another way that, that you have to balance that um, enthusiasm because it's easy to get in the way or, or to become a burden. So how did you, how did you set that limit? How did you know? Cause that is, it's an easy, it's a very easy kind of line to cross of being like too annoying. You know, there's like a, a cute, like, Oh, he's 14. He wants to fly a helicopter. Like let's bring him in. And there's like, Oh my gosh, here's a 14 year old that won't leave us alone. How did you draw that line and not cross it? 
I think being able to read people and situations well is is one thing that's important. Um, if, it, if it's clear that people are busy and, and not interfering with their work or just standing off to the side and listening. Uh, listening is so important. We're really uh, proficient at, at talking. But just, just if people are willing to allow you to listen in on their conversations or their ground lessons or things like that, uh, I learned so much that way. Um, I would also uh, mention that it's, it's important that we realize that no matter where we are in terms of experience uh, in aviation or, or life on the whole, there's always something that we can learn and know more about. And so, and that can be a benefit to the people around you. So if I could benefit them in any way, not necessarily with my knowledge, but with my ability to clean the hangar floor, I was going to do that. And this is, this is we, I know we were talking earlier before the podcast about how do you break into corporate aviation? How do you do this? How do you network? If you have the attitude of what can I bring, what can I provide to people and situations to make their life easier, to help them out, you will reap tenfold versus coming in there going with the attitude, okay, what can I learn? I want to do that. Or not, not what can I learn, but what can I gain from these people who have these nice aircraft and just being all uh, trying to take a lot versus, versus being willing to, to put in the work, knowing a whole lot. And then before you'll know it, you'll be a subject matter expert at if you start early, a potentially a very young age, and uh, people will start paying attention to you and you can benefit them and they can benefit you. And so I think it's really important to have that symbiosis. Yeah, uh, I agree. And it's funny you mentioned kind of what can you do for someone else. And my very first job, I finally got hired doing aerial survey. I had like 300 hours. I showed up my first day. I was like, cool, I get to go fly. Like I'm a pilot. I don't have to do these stupid jobs anymore. Like I say hi, shake hands. I'm like, all right, well, we're not flying today. So here's a broom, mop up all the flies that have died and are on the ground now. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, okay, yeah. And I was like, all right, I mean, this is what they want me to do. Like, they're going to pay me to do this and I get to fly eventually. But you just got to, you, you have to do those kind of jobs, you know? And I'm sure you could be the guy that complains about it or the girl that complains about it. And then that's going to rub them the wrong way. And maybe they'll be like, eh, maybe the sky is not going to work out. Or maybe we won't let him fly the cool plane. We'll put him in the plane that's about to burn up and die. And, you know, it's like, there's a, there's just, just be the, be a good person. That's essentially what it is. And be willing to do the jobs maybe that aren't as sexy as what other people are or what you have the idea of doing. Yeah. One must eschew any sense of entitlement at, 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 at every level. Um, no matter how much experience that you have, there, there isn't as there isn't a defined entitlement. Um, but that's especially true when you're starting out. So yes, no one owes you anything. So, no, they do not. Um, so when you were doing your training, let's even go back to like the moment when they're like, well, I think you're like a helicopter and you made the, you took your first ride in a helicopter and your life was all helicopter. At that point, at that moment in your life, what was your plan? What was your, your future goal? Was it, all right, I love helicopters. I'm just going to fly helicopters. Was it was like, I want all the ratings I can possibly get. I wanted to be an investment banker, to be honest. <laughs> I just want to do this for fun. <laughs> I, I, I thought that that was the track that I wanted. Um, I, was, I was also, in, at the time, uh, kind of into investing. My grandfather got me into uh, trading and the day trading. And this was kind of the, 
dot-com boom bust period. So there was a lot of money to be made. And so I enjoyed that challenge. I enjoyed learning about the, the markets and, and trading and, and really looking back, it was mostly about luck if I ever made any money with that. But, um, yeah, to be completely honest, I was not a, initially I was not a career driven. I wasn't 16, 17 going, uh, yeah, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. But as things progressed and I was able to, um, get enough money together to do the private at 17 and the commercial and CFI at 18, then I kind of thought for a second and I, the, the light bulb went off and I said, you know what? I'm, I, I think I can do this as a career. I think this would be a good career option for me. And once again, I'm not going to make the investment maker money, but, uh, that's okay. I'm going to have a good time. What was it about it that made the switch? Like what, do you remember when I know you I obviously remember when it was, but you remember what it was about aviation that made you feel comfortable saying, Hey, this is gonna be my career instead of just maybe a hobby? I don't have a good um moment in time where that happened. Um yeah, although I, I do remember that when the chief pilot of the helicopter flight school called me after I got my CFI. And he goes, uh, when can you start working? And I think this, I'm tooting my own horn here, but this speaks to not feeling entitled to anything. My next question to him was, in all honesty, doing what? <laughs> I just got my CFI. I was thinking, I don't know what I was thinking, but I didn't even assume that I would be offered a job as, as a CFI. Uh, and of course he goes, well, sleep, sleep in the bathroom floors, of course. And he goes, no, I want you to be be a, be a flight instructor. And then I said, well, I will. Uh, I would. I would love to do that. And uh, then I showed up on my first day with a fifty-five-year-old uh, sheriff's department student and had to begin the process of learning to uh, prove myself is not the the right word, but the the, the process of learning as a flight instructor. Uh, which is made that much more difficult when you're starting out uh, from a place of such a youth. How old were you when you became an instructor? 18. 18. I, I did the commercial on the CFI almost concurrently uh, in terms of the check rides there. What did your first student um, think of being taught by an 18-year-old? Was there kind of uh, any pushback at all? He's like, oh, this little 18-year-old doesn't know what he's talking about, or is it kind of all respect? He he was very respectful, very nice. Um and I think a lot of the a lot of the, the views that I that I have with with regards to learning and study were formed by that feeling from the very beginning that I am so young I can't change anything about my lack of experience I can't change anything about uh, you know how how young I look because I also had a baby face but what I can do is I can know as much as I possibly can. And I can do the best job as I possibly can. And one of the things that my chief pilot told me, and I really understand now, <laughs> is that when you're a new flight instructor, you have so much patience for, it's virtually unlimited for mistakes and students not <laughs> making the progress. Now, I mean, I, I don't have any full-time, um, I still do quite a bit of instruction, but I don't have any full-time private level students or anything like that. But but if I did, I might uh, 
doing 45 minutes of hover, hover practice might, might get to me in terms of patience. But again, starting out, I, I had this, this view that I should know as much as I can. And, and I knew that I had a lot of patience and a lot to learn. And, um, helicopters, you, you, you have to be humble with helicopters. I mean, you have to be humble with airplanes too, but in helicopters, there, there's such a time critical environment, especially in flight instruction, when you're doing simulated engine failures and things like that, they can kill you very, very quickly. You roll off the throttle and the student does the wrong thing. The rotor system stalls and there is nothing that you can do to recover it to the ground. So things are, things are very critical. Yeah, I'll pass. I'll let you fly the helicopters. Thank you, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I recently talked to someone else at uh, Hey Sam Adams up in British Columbia. I, he's, his episode's going to come out actually tomorrow. Um, well, people listening to this now, that doesn't mean anything because it came out like weeks ago. But he mentioned uh, a similar thing about how helicopters and how humble you need to be in a helicopter and how dangerous they can be. And I told him, too, that they're just so foreign to me that now where I'm at, it's like I don't really need to get in a helicopter. I'm like, other people like it. That's good for them. I'm glad they enjoy it. But fixed wing for life, you know? So it's really cool to talk to people that have those different experiences and that truly, truly love them and, and understand them. It's uh, it's It is a different realm of flying there's some things that are shared and, and some things that are that are pretty far apart um so being having been able to put the two of them together as i as i progressed and and went on the airplane route as well has been a really cool to be able to compare and contrast and, and take aspects from both and and kind of have them play off each other uh, with my flying so now you're 18, you are a CFI for, uh, for helicopters, and your goal is just helicopters at that point, or did you know that you also wanted to fly fixed-wing planes too still? I also wanted to fly fixed-wing uh, as well, but as you can imagine, as a, as a new flight instructor and balancing everything financially, I wasn't in a position to just go knock out a bunch of fixed-wing ratings too. Uh, so I had the, the, uh, the passion for flying fixed wing and was looking forward to that. But a hundred percent of my effort at the time was focused on being the best helicopter instructor I could be and uh, growing in, in that. And I kind of left that seed planted in the back of my mind for the future. How long did it take before you actually went up in a fixed wing plane to uh, actually practice for your ratings? Well, to actually, you know, it's funny. I, I, I looked at the first page of my logbook and we, we, uh, we took a family vacation up to Alaska. And for some reason, I, I had my parents convinced that I could rent a duchess out of Merrill Field at age 15 to go do some pattern work while we were up in Alaska. How'd that end <laughs> up? So, it was great. To, I don't remember much about it. I probably... Uh, I probably pissed the instructor off. Like, who's this kid that wants to go fly this twin around the pattern up in up in Anchorage? Um, but I, so that wasn't necessarily training per se, but it it definitely was was indicative of of that I did want to pursue the the fixed wing side of things. I just wasn't able to at the time. Right, and so I guess the mindset. One of the I guess following on and asking the question maybe a little bit better is. It was your, so obviously finances, you had to come up with the money for it, but were you kind of on the path of just becoming, or just kind of having, a, or like your future, was it just going to fly helicopters and you're going to carry out that job until you could get the money to fly fixed wing for fun? Or did you know that 
you wanted to do both of them in some avenue, some aspect where you can make money off both of them? I wish I could say I was a long-term planner and goal setter to that level. Uh, at the time, I was just focused on what I was doing. And it's it's kind of like the golden retriever squirrel thing that I would see something I want to do and I would go do that. That looks fun. And that's still the case now. But at the time, I was so focused on helicopters and then I just, oh, I'm going to... Have the opportunity. I'm going to go fly airplanes to get the right. So I didn't have a grand plan. I was more or less in the moment and in that that time in my life. Uh, instead of saying I want to do this, 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 and this, uh, it, it it is kind of odd to say looking back and going, how did I accomplish this much without having a clear set of goals of things I wanted to accomplish? Um, sometimes following your heart and following your passions does work out. <laughs> Oh, it definitely does. And I'm actually similar, similar to you. I don't, I'm not really a long-term planner. I mean, my wife would be like, what do you want to have for dinner? And I'll be like, uh, what do I want to do in the next like 10 minutes? Like, I don't know. I don't plan dinner out. <laughs> like that's been forever. What are you talking about? So yeah, it's definitely kind of trusting yourself and surrounding yourself with people that are a good soundboard and they can offer some advice and help you navigate the time in the moment. It's also, I mean, it is good to have grand plans. It does help you, you narrow down what you want to do with your life and your career, but you can still, as we're talking to you, you know, you can be successful in life and still not have a, a 10 year, 15 year plan when you're, when you're 15 years old. I will say later on down the line with helicopters and kind of looking at the realities of getting older, flying helicopters, um, Helicopters are pretty physically demanding on the body, especially if you're doing long line work where you stick your head out the helicopter and you're just you're just constantly manipulating your head and neck and you're in a variety of weather conditions. And I thought to myself, do I want to be 60 still hanging my head out the side of the helicopter or do I want to do I want to be sitting in the left seat being served a coffee? (laughs) I will say that that did play a role. Um, but it was mostly about, hey, here's a new challenge um, to pursue. And that was very interesting to me. What kind of support systems did you have when you made that change or made the, or you accepted the new challenge of learning to fly a fixed wing plane? Were you, were you married at the time? Jeff, you, you have a family or was it your parents where they said, you're crazy? Like you have your helicopter rating, just make money in that. Or are they like, no, I'd go for it. Like this is totally you. Um, the, the situation I was in at the time was pretty cool. I was living in Newport Beach with two other helicopter flight instructors. And uh, so it was just all aviation all the time. So there was the support of my fellow instructors and peers. And we would fly helicopters all day. And we would reminisce over what, how, what the students of the day did to scare us. And so there was there was a lot of... And we were constantly learning with helicopters, too, because the company uh, I still work with operates a wide variety of helicopters. So we were constantly being exposed to new things and new missions. Uh, I'll never forget, I was I was 19. I'd been a flight instructor for a little over a year and a half. And I'd been flying a lot. And they had a four-ship charter that weekend, and it was supposed to be four A-stars. But they only had three A-star pilots. And the chief pilot said, can you fly an A-star on a charter this weekend? 
And I thought to myself, oh my God, that's a turbine. How, what do I, yes, absolutely. So we knocked out the, we knocked out the four hours of required training. And the next thing you know, I had, uh, four unsuspecting passengers in the back of my A star and there we were. So we were, we were constantly growing and being exposed to new challenges. So I was, that was a really positive environment to be around, but it was very much all aviation all the time. What's it like flying such a big helicopter or something that's so different than what you're used to flying and not only just flying it with no one, in the, but you had actual passengers on board. <laughs> what was that like? The pressure is high. There's definitely, there's, there's definitely a, a lot of pressure to perform well and to, to do a good job for the passengers, not only from the safety perspective, but the, the comfort perspective. Um, and I remember we, we were flying and we dropped the passengers off at some ranch up in Malibu. And I remember flying back 19 front of this a star. It's empty. We're in kind of this loose formation. We're coming down the hill. I'm doing 140 knots looking around, just going, this is so cool. And I've had those moments of this is just so cool over and over in my career. And I think I really live for those moments. But the, that, was, that was the time after I dropped the passengers off and the pressure was relieved a little bit. But I still had to land this A-star back at the heliport. And uh, people that know A-stars know that they're not the easiest helicopters to land. Interesting. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, just being a fixed wing pilot, knowing having you only have five hours or four hours in an airplane, you don't, I mean, you, you might feel comfortable enough to go up and go solo and go land, but like, you don't fully know, like, there's really no way you don't have the experience to know everything about that aircraft and the situations you can get yourself in, you know? That's very true. I, I was, I benefited greatly by having the the mentorship of the chief pilot that I had a, a, at that helicopter school, and he pushed very hard. Um, you you didn't have to meet a minimum standard, and you're good to go. It was you're expected to meet the same standards as your typical 135 line pilot. It doesn't matter how many hours you have, and you need to do even more than that. And the A-Star, there's been a lot of accidents in the A-Star hydraulics off uh, because of, well, I get into that, but uh, normally you run the helicopter on and they, so you slide it along the ground at about 20 miles an hour and it makes the control forces less. And uh, that's the way we typically teach terminating the maneuver. It's the safest way. But he wanted to make sure that I had the ability to hover this helicopter hydraulics off under all circumstances. And that's definitely requiring a higher standard. But his his mentorship and his insistence on on always going for that higher standard is something that I've I've taken with me through every step in aviation. That's good. It's good to have a mentor like that. It's good to have someone push you. I mean, I'm sure he knew that he could push you like that. I'm sure he saw the capabilities that you had. So I'm guessing maybe someone he felt weak in or so it might be a little weaker. He probably wouldn't have given them that opportunity, but he saw something in you and he wanted to make sure that you could be the best that you could possibly be. And it sounds like he pushed you to do it. He very, he very much did. And I, I tried to do exactly the same with all of my students that I've worked with in the past. And I will, once we work for work with in the future, the thing that I like to tell people, I love doing stage checks. They're, 
yeah, I, I, I don't get, I don't have to be the DP thing, pass or fail, because I can also teach a little bit on a stage check. And I like to remind them before we start the stage check that if you can get through me, the DPE will be a piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> you lost so, your engine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, well, how many stage checks did you do or do you still do stage checks? Are you still pretty active being a CFI? So uh, in, in the helicopter realm, um, I, I don't really do any more primary instruction, but the, the progression kind of, this was, this was hand in hand uh, in my, my first A-star charter flying experience, was hand in hand in getting me ready for doing the primary business of the helicopter company, which was law enforcement initial and recurrent training in helicopters. And um, so what I still do quite a bit of is I fly, let's see, the EC-120, the A-star, the MD-500, on uh, the Bell 206, uh, I'll work with law enforcement clients primarily, but also private private clients, and I'll run them through full initial or recurrent training in the actual aircraft. And so that's that's what I do most. I, I do a little bit of um, uh, ATP prep. Oh, and then I, I still do teach in the Robinsons. I've I've had the opportunity um, to come back in and teach new CFIs for that flight school. And I love doing that because you, you get to share the, the stories and the experiences and the, the knowledge that you've been able to gain over the years with new flight instructors and uh, so that they can then pass that value on to their students. This, this tree of knowledge that you're a part of and, and, and the transference of knowledge is, is something that's, that's really cool. So that was a long answer to, do you still instruct? But yes, yes, I do. <laughs> Uh, it sounds like it's hard to, I, I guess the question I was going to form off of that was how can you be current in so many of those airplanes? How can you feel comfortable or helicopters? How can you feel comfortable like knowing everything about them? Are they not as simple? Do they all build off each other or is it just you're like a gifted aviator and you're the best? Uh, I'm not the best. I would be the first to admit I'm not the best. Um, I, I do think a lot about what I'm going to be flying that day, whether it means that it's sitting down the night before with the the flight manual and reviewing limitations or things like that. Um, but I, I had the opportunity to hang out with Chuck Yeager a few years ago. It was a really cool event. Um, and I got to talk to him because we, we were sharing the story. He flew helicopters as well. And he said, I, I, was a really, I was a really good pilot. Of course, Chuck Yeager is a very good pilot. And he said, what really did it for me was the opportunity to fly so many different makes and models of, of airplanes and helicopters. And he said that he could just walk out to the ramp and look at an airplane and know how it was going to fly. And I thought, that is so cool. And so I've taken that uh, ideal to the flying that I do when it comes to do you want to fly such and such make and model even if it is going to mean I have to drive an hour or two to fly I've never flown a turbine 206 uh, a, a Cessna 206 but if that opportunity came up I would right now gladly drive two hours to go do that which goes towards the always say yes to new experiences 
So the answer to your question with regards to how do you keep track of so many different makes and models, once you get in this mode of constantly being able to switch between aircraft, I kind of, I kind of uh, have that, that uh, image of in the matrix where I think it's is it Trinity that is programmed to fly a Bell 212. She it's just, just, she accesses that program. It's programmed into her, and suddenly she could fly that. You have a you have a selection of different programs in your mind for different aircraft that you fly, and you just need to access those programs. A lot of that does come with experience, but also just mentally planning for the flight that you're about to do, and uh, and reviewing the appropriate um, limitations, emergency procedures, things like yeah, that. That makes sense. It does make sense. It is probably being able to tap into that and getting used to that, getting used to going back and forth. Because once you, when I even flew freight, we, I would be in the PC-12 for the longest time. And then six months later, call me to go to a trip in a caravan. Whenever they did it, it was always when in the winter and there's like severe icing everywhere down to approaches down to minimums. And it seemed everything was going against you, but like I still knew how to fly the plane. I could still figure it out. I'm guessing it's a similar thing with all those multiple aircraft as well. Um, one thing I was going to ask, and I don't think we touched on yet, is when did you make the switch to fixed wing? When was that in your career? Was it? Uh, I know you said you wanted to, you needed to make some money. You wanted to to make sure you could um, make some money. I didn't know if that was further down the line, if it was a couple of years later, or when was the actual timing? Let's see. I was like early twenties, twenty four, something like that. So I've been flying helicopters quite a few years, and so I had the opportunity to just knock out rest of my fixed wing ratings. And I had some friends in the fixed wing world and got some King Air time and citation time, things like that. And through this, this kind of goes into the, the, what can you do for other people? I was working with an, a wealthy individual that I was flying charter for at the time in the helicopter. I was working with his pilot to try to find the right helicopter for him to buy. And I put a lot of effort into that, but I didn't have any stake in the game other than just helping them find the right helicopter for their mission. And I would always, this guy wanted to fly it at odd times and his schedule would always change. And his full-time pilot, he had a hawker at the time, his full-time pilot knew that he could call me pretty much whenever and I would answer the phone and I would make sure that he was booked for that, that charter that he needed. So having that availability and having um, that, that um, enthusiasm for helping them allowed me to one day have a meeting with them. And they said, hey, we, um, we have a Challenger 605. Would you like to fly it? Because we're also buying a helicopter. <laughs> and I said, yes, I, I think I can do that. And the next thing I knew, I was um, I was in Wilmington, Delaware at uh, Challenger 605 initial. That goes back to saying kind of uh, be open for every opportunity. You know, like you said, like say yes to, to new things. And also goes to how you carried yourself throughout this whole thing and how you were able to, to make sure you didn't cross that line of being helpful versus being annoying. You know, you, you stayed in your, in your path and you were in their good graces and you did things for the right reasons and you made the right connections based on your dedication and uh, just always trying to either improve yourself or make sure you're there and you can help others. And I, and I didn't have, I, I never went into that situation going, I want to fly their challenger. I didn't even think in a million years that I would, that they would be offering me that position. But when they saw my availability and my enthusiasm, 
that speaks more towards, I mean, that was, believe it or not, that was my first jet type rating, um, than just having the, the flight hours. So That's crazy. How many hours um, yeah, did you I, have? I started big. Oh, five in fixed wing at the time. Yeah. Fixed wing. 500 ish. I oh, think man, people are going to kill you. They're going to be so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, although I will say I had, uh, 5,000 hours in helicopters yeah. at the time. That does help. So, all right, fine, it was, fine. We, we won't kill I you. Had, right. I had indeed paid my dues. Um, but yes, I, I started um, with, without a significant amount of time. And we, uh, gosh, I, I still miss flying that Challenger. I really like the Challenger. Some people, uh, you know, at the time I probably complained about its approach and landing characteristics and crosswind landing characteristics, but I do miss the Challenger. Yeah, Challenger is a good plane, and there, there's different varieties of it. And they're they're pretty they're pretty awesome airplanes. The company I fly for has a, quite a few challengers. We have the six we call them the six fifties, and we have three fifties as well. But they uh, they seem to be a favorite of a lot of people. The cockpit is is very very comfortable. I really enjoyed the cockpit and primarily the footrests. Those were fantastic. The footrests are nice. Yeah, I'll take a footrest. Um, what was it like, kind of making the transition from helicopter to fixed wing? I'm guessing most people that fly helicopters and fixed wing have probably gone the other way. Where they've probably flown fixed wing first and then they go helicopter. Unless they're from the military, maybe they could have gone the, the the other way as well. But what was it like? Was it difficult? Did you have to kind of access a different program in your brain like you talked about earlier? Or could did they all kind of work together and tie in together? Uh, helicopter flying gives you a high level of situational awareness um, about what's going on at the time. A, a good control touch because helicopters are so sensitive. Um, and I was already so technically minded and cause I, when I've started teaching in the A star, I still had that I'm young. I need to impress. I need to know everything. I need to know as much as I possibly can. So I was very technically minded. So when I went into challenger, uh, initial, I had read the books. I had memorized what I needed to memorize and, um, I, I was, I was still that same flight simulator nerd. So a lot of, uh, I, I'd like to say I taught myself how to fly jets on flight simulator and then went out and, and did it. And, uh, while that's not completely true, it's, it's pretty close. Yeah. Was there anything <laughs> I, that kind of stuck you up at all that was difficult for you making the transition? This learning the sight pictures on on landing, I think, was difficult, especially in the Challenger because you're coming in nose low. Um, I, I I practiced a lot in the sim, like energy management and things like that, in, in just just flight simulator because you could see, okay, if I pull the power back here, where am I going to be? Speed, pitch, all of these associations. Uh, it, it it seemed to click pretty easily for me because I had that that experience. I wasn't learning all this for the first time. I mean, I'm, I'm tooting my own horn here, but I remember the first sim session in the challenger and they, they saw my, my, my log book and things like that. And they were thinking, okay, this is going to be, and they said, okay, we just want Hold you to take tight. off. Yeah. Hold on we just tight. want you to take off and make left traffic and come back and land. And I took off and I pulled the power back and I cleaned up and asked for the after takeoff checklist. And I turned downwind 200 knots, trimmed it out. And the, the guy in the right seat and the sim instructor are looking at me like, who, what, who is this guy? 
And I, but it, it was when you're flying a level D sim, you are flying just a very fancy flight simulator. And it was, it just goes back to the, the flight simulator days. It's not that I was this outstanding, amazing stick and rudder pilot with all this natural ability. No, my eyesight was terrible. In fact, it wasn't until I got LASIK last year, <laughs> uh, you know, poor eyesight. And I'd learned a lot of hand-eye coordination from helicopters, but I just had so much uh, experience from, from flight sim and, and so much thought into how I was going to do things. And uh, I learned from every sim session and every flight. And, and what I really enjoyed was getting, getting into the crew resource management aspects of it. Yeah, no, crew resource, CRM definitely kind of brings a whole nother level of aviation. And it's something that a lot of people, you can be good at. I mean, you can work at it. It's a skill to learn just because you might struggle with it or it's foreign to you doesn't mean that you can't do that because you just have to practice at it. It's just another skill in your toolbox. It's something that in addition to helicopter flying with the, with the charter flying I do now and having new FOs come up, I love when we can, I love teaching as, as part of getting the job done. I love when we can have a really good briefing, when they have a good attitude and um, we, can, we can plan out how we're going to do the flight. I'll talk about the specifics and then we go and we execute the flight. And the most important thing is, is for me being able to give a good debrief. And back when I was, I mean, I'm still learning. Uh, in fact, every, every flight that I do in, in any any uh, jet aircraft with multiple crew, I always ask for at least a short debrief. Um, so uh, I, I love being able to to uh, still do that kind of instruction. It's a different sort of instruction when you're when you're talking about uh, crew resource management and and who's responsible for what. And the attitudes of of the guys uh, and gals that are coming through are so good. And they're so ready to learn. And it's, it's just a really fun environment for me. I love doing that. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I'm not a teacher. I don't, but I, I do love, I love that aspect of it as well. And this kind of segues or doesn't really segue, but I want to segue into more about kind of, I know we can't talk too much about what you do, but an idea of what you do and kind of how your path has led to where you are. What was next after the Challenger? Uh, was it the, did you stick around with the same uh, kind of uh, corporate aviation industry that you're in, like half helicopter, half now flying jets? Kind of what was the next step? Well, I was with that that Challenger for, for quite a while. Um, I helped them with the purchase of another helicopter and um, I upgraded on the Challenger. And so I was then a, a co-captain. And so I, I enjoyed quite a bit of, of that back and forth between helicopter and, and airplane. Um, and so that's the, that's the same realm I stayed in, in, in aviation, because there is, there is a demand for that right dual rated guy to be able to fly the helicopter and fly the airplane. And, uh, so that's what I do now. And that's what I enjoy. Yeah. You talk about the demand for it. I was just, uh, I was actually just about to ask that. Is this like a, a job that multiple people have for different organizations or they, where they need someone that can be kind of the utility man that can fly everything? Is this like a common job or do you say this is pretty random, not random, but pretty rare? It's pretty rare. It's, uh, it's, it's when they, when they do happen, uh, oftentimes one the pilot will specialize in, let's say they're primarily a helicopter pilot and then they're FO on some, something else. Uh, but, uh, but there are cases where there will be 
twin engine helicopter PICs and large cabin business jet PICs, and, and they'll do both. Um, it is, it's not a common job and it's not a, not a very common experience base to have. So when someone is looking for that type of pilot to fill the role, you can see them advertised, but I would say this, these, I've never gotten, I have never interviewed for a single job in aviation ever. That's awesome. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I mean, is that you using the contacts, you know, or just you putting yourself in the right position at the right time and, and just to kind of echoing what we talked about earlier and just uh, making sure you're in it for the right reasons and you're not necessarily begging to fly their plane, but eventually you can, uh, can work it out or they call you back. I was never, um, I, I was, was never begging for a job or even, uh, even hinting. Uh, it was always the, um, Hey, would you like, would you be interested in this? Uh, because in, in the, in the jobs that I've had, I had always, I had had, they, I was a known quantity. I wasn't working for them at the time, but I had helped them with such and such with, whether it be a pre-purchase on their helicopter or doing some training for them or, or what have you. And really, I say that I haven't interviewed for any jobs. I have interviewed. I've interviewed from that perspective in that role. Whereas how can I, um, uh, how can I help these people with whatever they're doing and, and not with the intention of trying to get a job, but when they, when they are back at the, the, the base of operations for their flight department and they go, wow, we really need to hire that guy. That's how that sort of thing happens. Yeah, no, that's what I meant. I was, I was joking when I said the begging. I wasn't making it sound like you actually <laughs> beg for your jobs. I know. I, I know we talked about that. <laughs> it was, it was a kind of just, uh, it, it wasn't a begging. So yeah, I didn't mean for it to come off like that, but yeah. I mean, you, 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 what you do is it just sounds so cool and it sounds so unique. And I know people listening are going to be like, oh my gosh, how do I get my helicopter rating and my jet rating? And I get to do this and I get to do that. So what was kind of the overlying, like, what would you recommend to someone listening to this? that's maybe 15 years old and they, they hear this and they want to do what you're doing. They want to kind of go down the same route or they want to market themselves to be able to get their best job or their dream jobs. How would you, how would you recommend them to go about that? I would focus attention on some of the things I've already talked about, uh, the attitude and knowing as much as you possibly can about everything. That's as a brief aside, I'm a, I am a, I'm an anti anti intellectualist with regards to aviation. The, I, I believe that, that we should know as much as we possibly can without getting in the way but I, I really hate it uh, when you're at a training center and goes, ah, you know, we don't need to know that. Well, if you have the basics and you have everything else, you should know as much as you possibly can. Yeah, I <laughs> so I like doing that. So I would say the first part is, is know a lot. But the other half of it is learn to be good with, with people. Uh, expose um, yourself to a wide variety of situations in which you will need to interact socially um, and and have a um, have a have a good attitude going into that and, and learn how to um, learn how to converse about these things positively and make a good impression. I'm not saying try to change who you are because we all have different levels of 
how much social contact that we want or, or how much we enjoy speaking in a, in a situation. But if you want to be that guy that is, is able to mentor a new CEO that just bought a CJ4, you're going to need to talk to that CEO like the CEO is used to being talked to. Uh, so I don't have any specific advice of what particularly you should do, but if you can cultivate that skill set of being able to talk to high level professionals in a professional manner, present yourself well, have a good positive attitude and, and be able to be a good communicator, that's very important. And I think that goes along with, I'm a huge advocate. I know it's not for everyone. And it's easy for me to say because I am a flight instructor. I think that it is very a valuable thing to do, especially if you want to get into this world, because working with a wide variety of students does allow you that practice in, in working with a, a whole bunch of different people and learning about their personalities. That's one of the things I was, was, was able to do and am grateful for in the helicopter flying I did because I didn't just work with new students. I worked with professional pilots and law enforcement pilots and different people from the industry um, and, and had to practice being able to um, associate with them and being able to convey information and, and give them a good experience uh, when they came for recurrent training. So that's uh, I wish I had uh, had more concrete. You should do X, Y and Z, but it's it's more fluid than that. Yeah, it's tailored to the individual person. I agree with you about CFI, too. And it, it really helped. I mean, I wasn't a CFI, so it's hard for, for me to actually say I agree with you, but it is a very valuable tool for someone to have. And it, it creates you to learn how to communicate. It creates you to learn how to convey your what you know your high level of knowledge to, to varying levels of people so you to to a student pilot to a commercial pilot to an atp or you're doing a, a bfr for or whatever it may be you need to know how to communicate to each and every individual person that comes in there and how to be very strong in what you do so it definitely helps with your with you and, and it helps improve you as a person and communication and just what you need to do to set yourself up for success mm-hmm. absolutely how many aircraft would you say you can, so say today, like, do you have a number in your head of how many aircraft do you feel comfortable flying? Because <laughs> I've seen and, and we've talked and it sounds like it's more than I could probably imagine. I had, I think, a week this last year that I flew 10 different makes and models, a variety of helicopters and airplanes uh, between the full-time stuff, the citations and the charter side of things. Uh, aerobatics. Uh, I'm doing some warbird flying, uh, and then as well as the helicopter stuff. So, yeah, I've had a week where I've flown ten different makes and models. Uh, back when I was doing more hardcore helicopter stuff, I've, I flew six different makes and models of helicopters in one day. Uh, I know these situations sound like, well, how do you get the opportunity? It sounds crazy, but it's it's all built off of. And kind of what we've been talking about for a lot of the, the podcast. So yeah, it's it's quite a few different aircraft. How many type ratings do you think you do you actually have? How many types? I have seven type ratings. Okay, seven, seven type uh, ratings. Seven type ratings and um, yeah, a few different business jets, and, and I'm always open for more. <laughs> Does this is your goal to be like a Pokemon trainer? Got to catch them all, or are you kind of uh, are you happy with what you have? I. I don't want to be a rating collector. I like 
being able to get some time in the aircraft that I, I get a type rating in so that because you know that uh, you learn most about the aircraft after you're finished training in it. Mm-hmm. So if, if you have the opportunity to fly it quite a bit afterwards, that, that first 100 or 200 or 500 hours you fly that aircraft is when you really uh, become attuned to, to that, that airplane. So no, I mean, yes, I would love to any, any opportunity for a new type rating. Absolutely. But if I can also parlay that into, Hey, I'm getting this type rating so that I can assist with this mission or that mission or what have you, then, um, I, I try to do that. Yeah. Do you have a favorite air crane, air, air crane? Do you have a favorite airplane or a helicopter that you have flown or had the ability to fly or they all kind of rank in a special place? That's a, that's a tough question. Um, the, I always appreciate the, the challenge of a particular aircraft on a particular mission. So for an aerobatic mission, the answer will be different than, uh, a a corporate jet mission, Uh, but a favorite airplane. How about this? Let's say you had, it's a beautiful day outside. You have maybe a friend that you want to take up for the first time and you can choose one of the vast airplanes or helicopters that you have flown before, which one would you take? I'm going to take them up in a decathlon. I love giving, uh, intro aerobatic rides, especially if someone is enthusiastic about going upside down for the first time. I love aerobatics because I spent a good portion of my career in the seat of a helicopter with a lot of vibration and a lot of firm landings and my spine is compressed, but you flip that airplane airplane upside down and, and push two and a half negative. That is the best spinal decompression money can buy. (laughs) But, but I, I, I really like, uh, taking people upside down for the first time, uh, especially if it's beyond just a, Hey, we rolled the airplane. It's okay. We're going to sit upside down because it's, it's a whole new world when you're inverted. And initially it looks strange and everything looks completely and all the controls seem backwards. And then as you do it more and more, that challenge becomes uh, a little bit easier and a little bit easier. So it, it's cool to share that experience of that world of being upside down. And aerobatics are hard if you want to do them with a high level of precision. And I'm not even, not even close to being... Um, worthy of uh, competition level aerobatics, but I'd like to get to that point. At some, at some. Would you compare, you, know, you mentioned earlier that helicopters, you have to be very humble flying a helicopter. And I imagine you have to be very humble when you fly in an aerobatic plane. Would you say that they're very similar or would you say that they're different in the types and ways that you need to be careful and you need to, to kind of respect what you're doing? Uh, that touches on, on aviation risk management and that is, of course, a very important skill. Um, and in fact, it's a skill that I think should be reinforced or taught and reinforced throughout uh, both basic training and, and, and as we, we move forwards. So when I look at a specific mission to fly a helicopter, right, we're going to go on a nice summer day and we're going to go and we're going to have a good time. I'm informed by past experiences where things haven't gone right uh, in both airplanes and helicopters. And I think about the things that could happen, the likelihood that they could happen, and what I will do to reduce the likelihood that they happen. So when you're comparing risk management in a helicopter 
versus an airplane, there are some things that are more likely, of course, to happen that could be bad in a, in a helicopter. And I'm going to think about those and guard against those. I, I learned my favorite book for risk management is a book called Controlling Risk in a Dangerous World. It's by Captain Jim Weatherby. He was a space shuttle astronaut. And he talks about how we interface both with the machinery that we use and the people that we interact with. I would recommend, it doesn't matter which level, where you're at in aviation, if you want to get into the risk management side of things, also touches on CRM, Controlling Risk is a fantastic book. So I'll to check it out. I don't think I've read that one before. That's very good. Good. Well, I appreciate that, man. Uh, you're pretty much all done with the podcast. Last thing I have is a rapid fire section, and you are going to be asked to a couple questions and you have to say the quickest, I mean, the absolute quickest and first thing that comes to your mind with no explanation whatsoever. All right. This is very gestalt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you accept the challenge? I do. All right, cool. So here we go. What is your favorite airplane? Let's start with an airliner. What's your favorite airliner? Triple seven. What, what's your favorite corporate jet? Falcon 8X. What about just a piston, a uh, single engine, or a uh, small twin? Pitts S2 right. uh, A. Oh, it took you a while to think about that. Was there another one in there? <laughs> yeah, the, the A flies a little nicer than the B, but the B has more power. All right. Um, this is one that I get some flack for with my answer, but I truly believe there are some ugly airplanes out there, and it's okay that they're ugly. They might have some, uh, some other great aspects to them, but they're just ugly. Do you have an ugliest airplane that you have ever seen? No. Lose it. No, I'm just kidding. Come on, man. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's fine. Some people don't have one, so it's all good. Uh, here's another one. What is something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? That this is a business that you can die very quickly and very easily, sometimes through no fault of your own, and you should take every opportunity that you can to improve yourself to the highest order in order to prevent that like unfortunate that. possibility from happening. I like that answer. That's probably going to be the intro to this podcast, that answer. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, who is someone in, you've actually, actually, you've actually named the person that everyone else has answered so far, but who in this industry that you haven't met yet, would you like to meet? They could be living or dead. I would like to meet um, Jim Lovell from from Apollo 13. He, those guys were, I did an Insta post on that. Those, those guys are heroes of mine. That's cool. I would agree. They're pretty cool. That's a good one. Uh, what is the hardest approach you've ever had to fly? I had to fly <laughs> I had to fly a raw data um, hand flown approach because of a systems failure down to we'll call it very very low minimums, something that you would normally only do in the sim, and sometimes I would click all off click off all the automation in the sim and say, oh, you know, I'm going to make this a challenge. And you go, okay, yeah, but we're not going to do this in the real world. And we don't. We normally use all the automation. But when you have to fly, hand fly a raw data, uh, I think it was an LPV approach, 
down to minimums with a pretty good crosswind, you you got to be on your game. And that was probably the time. Got to be on your game. I, I had uh, going into recently, I think it was uh, BJC or it was um, Centennial maybe. We had to fly a pretty, pretty good little snowstorm with uh, some snow on the runway, max crosswind limitation with a contaminated runway. And it was just uh, down to minimums. And it was just, it was, it was an interesting and fun time, you know, it really challenges you. Nice. I, mean, I imagine you briefed your threats on that approach. Absolutely. That's all we did the whole way. <laughs> no, we did. We did. We, that's one of the things I like my company at is they're, they're very into that and they want to make sure that you're as professional as possible and, and threats are a thing. So it's very important to talk about them. Yeah, I try to introduce that into all the corporate flying that I do as well, even if even if we don't have an FOM that specifies that. All right. What is your favorite airport you've ever had to land at? Or helipad, I guess I should say. There, the, my favorite helipad is uh, Prince Rupert in British Columbia, Canada. It's in Seal Cove. Um, and it's absolutely beautiful there. Uh, flying helicopters back and forth to Alaska. It's pretty much every airport in Alaska is my favorite airport yeah, to land. Never been there, but I want to go. So I would probably say the same once I do go. Yeah, you should, you should definitely go. What's your least favorite airport or helipad you've ever had to land at? I like Teterboro because I get to go into the city usually, so it's not that. I don't mind Teterboro, uh, actually. I feel like when yeah, the winds I, aren't crazy, Teterboro is okay because they know what you want to do. You have expectations. You just do what they what they want, and you know what they expect, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, I really like Teterboro. Um, oh, I know. Monmouth County, New Jersey. That runway is terrible. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't like Monmouth. And it also meant at an old job, I was going to have to spend a week at a residence and bored out of my mind waiting to go to the next place. So yeah, Monmouth County. That's Monmouth the sounds familiar, but I don't think I've been there. Um, sounds <laughs> interesting. Any place yeah, called Bel- Monmouth? Belmar, New Jersey. Yeah. Belmar. Yes. Been to Belmar, unfortunately. That's an interesting place for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's the, that's the same thing. Belmar, Monmouth. All right, gotcha. So, okay, I get it now. Yeah, that makes more sense. I understand I why that's I was just using the wrong name. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Would you rather fly IFR or VFR? I would rather fly VFR. What's your favorite airport food? So it can be one of two things. It can be you're flying corporate and you you get access to a crew car and you're in a new city, you've never been before, and you're going to go get food, or it can be when you are uh, making a connection in an airport and you want to get some airport food, what's your go-to? Uh, I, try to f- I try to go to the back of the popcorn machine and find the stalest, most disgustingly fermented kernels of popcorn, and then I'll use that as a snack usually. That's smart. Uh, that's usually what we recommend, too. <laughs> I think that that's going to lead to a lot of healthy years flying and a very happy life. <laughs> Yeah, you got to take you got to take care of yourself uh, mentally and physically, and that's really one of the good ways to do it. Signature flight support always helps with that. If all you're eating stale popcorn, you're going to be set. <laughs> uh, here's one: Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or city? That depends which aircraft I'm flying and what threats I've. <laughs> I I would rather I would fly over the mountains. I used to teach a lot of mountain flying. And so the the fun of visualizing the safest path through the mountains and what the winds are going to be doing and what your what your outs are at all all times, the mountains are are fantastic. Airbus or Boeing? Overall, everything encapsulated in a one. Helicopter, airplane, everything. Airbus or Boeing? Um Boeing. 
Boeing. Yeah, Favorite airline livery? I like the earliest livery that TWA put on their L1011s where it had a silver bottom and one red stripe and the two... Um, the, the two yellow rings, if you, if you look, there's not very many pictures of them. It is a gorgeous livery that speaks to the era. Um, second would be Continental's meatball livery. I, I love that. I'll have to look both those up. I don't know if I've seen either one of those. So. I, was the question historical or current livery? Whatever, just in general, any, any livery <laughs> okay. that you've ever liked. So it doesn't have to be current. Yeah. So that just as long that. as you didn't say the, the original Southwest one, then we're going to be all right. <laughs> Would you rather fly long trips or short trips? So when I say that, I mean maybe like one long, like you're on a Gulfstream 13-hour ride, or would you rather fly like eight short trips in one day? Do I have a flight attendant that's going to be making food or not? Um, yeah, but they are in a bad <laughs> mood. <laughs> uh, I would. I would. I love doing eight legs a day. I like. I like moving around. I don't like sitting for 13 hours. So I'm going to say a bunch of short legs. Hardest check ride you've ever had to take. Um, that's it. I, well, they all been easy since you're a super aviator. I had one that I can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That works too. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> that, that. That was difficult. I passed and I wrote a letter. People that will know it. This was after I was, I was pretty high time in helicopters. And I, I wrote a letter to the FAA that I did not send and I regret not sending it because DPEs should behave themselves and not do the things that this DPE was doing to me. Uh, so that was a difficult check ride, not from the flying standpoint, but this DPE should not have been giving check rides. He is, he's since retired, um, but there's just no room for that in, in modern aviation. Oh, wow. Well, I wish I could ask more questions about it, but we can leave it at there. Don't worry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Here is uh, one, and we're getting toward the end. What's the biggest win of your career? Win. There was one time I was doing auto rotations with a student, and he bet me 50 push-ups. In front of the tower. So it was, we're doing auto rotations to a spot in the A-star and it was windy and we could give each other, he, he was great. We'd been flying with each other for years and we could give the engine failure at any point. We had to land right on in the middle of those six of the number six on two, six right at Chino. And uh, so I, he, he gives me the, that first engine failure or no, I gave him the first engine failure. And I think he put it three feet short And then he gave me the engine failure and I just did a zero ground run right into the middle of the six. And then we hover taxied over to the base of the tower and he gets out of the helicopter with it running at idle and does 50 pushups in front of the helicopter. And I know the guys in the tower are like, what is going on down there? So that was a pretty good win. Thanks, Marty. I'll fly with you anytime. I like that. That's a good one. Uh, what's your favorite airline to fly on? This is the last one. So if you could choose an airline, I don't know if you do it very often, but if you could choose one airline, even if it's business class, whatever bougie kind of flying you do, what's the number one go-to? I'm a credit card points game player, and I flew ANA's first class for basically nothing, just credit card points. And it was the most incredible airline experience I've ever had from LAX to... Uh, um, Narita in Tokyo and that the food, the wine, everything was fantastic. So I felt, felt very wealthy for 
having only just accumulated some credit card points. They had the good boxed Francia for you? Well, I had to actually special order that because <laughs> they they were only stocking Dom Perignon and I'm just, yeah, and especially that 09 it. vintage, I yeah. just couldn't do it. <laughs> well, James, you have successfully passed the interview, man. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you talking. Uh, you have done a lot in your career and you've done it a pretty great way. And it's just really cool to hear your story. So I appreciate you coming on. I think this is going gonna, is gonna to resonate well with a lot of people. So I uh, appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, no problem. Anytime. Have a good one. AV Nation, that is a wrap of episode number 126 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can check us out on Instagram. Follow us on all social media using the tag at Pilot the Pilot. AV Nation, hope you're having a great day. I hope everyone's staying safe. And as always, happy flying.